Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. So in just a few days, we are going to gather around with our friends and family to the Thanksgiving table, and we are going to feast until we are sick. Hopefully nobody has any allergies to turkey or doesn't celebrate turkey. Uh, That would be a shame. But in order to prepare ourselves for Thanksgiving, I just want to start off with a few fun facts that you may not know about Thanksgiving. First off, the first Thanksgiving was celebrated in 1621, an over uh, three-day harvest festival. It included 50 pilgrims, 90 Wampanoag Indians, and lasted three days. But here's the sad part. It is believed by historians that only five women were present. Glad Thanksgiving has gotten better and the ladies are part of the table. Turkey was not on the menu at the first Thanksgiving. Venison, duck, goose, oysters, lobster, eel, which I don't know who would have thought that that was a good idea. Fish were likely served alongside pumpkins and cranberries, but there was no pumpkin pie or cranberry sauce. It's a shame there was no pumpkin pie. Cranberry sauce, I don't know who thought that was a good idea either. Uh, So it's good that that wasn't part of it. Abraham Lincoln proclaimed Thanksgiving a national holiday on October 3rd of 1863. Sarah Joseph Hale, the woman who wrote Mary Had a Little Lamb, convinced Lincoln to make Thanksgiving a national holiday after writing letters for 17 years. 17 years about Thanksgiving, and it finally paid off. The average number of calories consumed on Thanksgiving. Does anybody want to just throw this out there? Average number of calories. Anybody got a guess? 3,500? Oh, 2,500, okay. 4,500 calories are consumed. Anybody know what pastry is? I'm talking about like the noodles, the homemade like noodle pastry. That's always a staple diet. I mean, it's, I think our family consumes probably like 10,000 calories at Thanksgiving. And so, hey, it's the one day of year that you can splurge, right? Because I eat healthy every other day of the year except for that day. And my wife laughs. I'm sure that many of you participate in some sort of cooking. How many of you will do majority of the cooking for your family? Raise your hand. Majority of the (laughs) cooking. Yes, Zach's honesty is great. Um, I want to be able to help you through that. I want to be able to help you and give you some tips. And so uh, I went online and I did a search course. That's where you find all your information, right? And so they did a cookbook and kindergartners came up with these recipe ideas. And so I'm going to give them to you. Uh, Jeremy says this. This is how you cook a turkey. You buy the turkey. You take the paper off. Then you put it in the refrigerator. Take it back out. Cut it with a knife. And make sure all the wires are out. Take out the neck and the heart, then you put it in a big pan, cook it for a half an hour at 80 degrees. Then you invite the people over and you eat it. Alan says this, first you shoot it, this guy's got it down. Then you cut it, then you put it in the oven, cook it for 10 minutes at 20 degrees. You put it on the plate and then you eat it. But Christopher, I'm a big pumpkin pie guy, Christopher has the best recipe for pumpkin pie. He says first you buy a pumpkin and you smash it. Then it's all done. You cook it in the oven for 12 minutes at 4 degrees, and then you eat it. But regardless of how we eat Thanksgiving dinner, this day, this Thursday, is a day in which we set aside as a nation to spend time with our friends and family and to praise God for what he has done, and we can look forward to that. But of course, as Christians, we understand that Thanksgiving is not just a one-day event. It is every single day. The Bible commands us, Psalm 34, chapter 1, that I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And so we're commanded to always give thanks to God. 
But have you ever thought about what effective praise to God looks like? Is it just simply meaning that we thank God all throughout the day? Well, how is this possible if we're thanking God while we're sleeping? Is it simply just mere words that expresses our thanks to God? If you have your Bibles with me, take them with me briefly this morning to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, uh, we understand that Hebrews, well, we actually don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. We don't know for sure. Some people estimate or guess that it was either Paul, and some people say Luke, other people say other people as well, but the fact is, even though we don't know for sure who the author is, it did pass the test of canonicity, and it's an inspired book. It's it's part of the inspired word of God. Hebrews is written to the Hebrew Christians that were considering making a return to Judaism. Uh, Most likely, this is a second-generation group of Christians, and so oftentimes what happens with the second generation is they are less likely to be as Um, they're Christians, but they're less likely to be as set aside for the faith as what the first generation is because, you know, they more or less take things for granted. And so they were thinking about making their way back to Judaism. A lot of this came out of their immaturity and their faith mixed with a lack of the gospel's implications for their life. And so the author wrote this entire book of Hebrews to discuss the sufficiency and the superiority of Christ. All throughout the book, the author explains the parallel of the Old Testament law and the new covenant that we have in Christ. And in so doing, the author elevates the finished work of Christ that we find in the gospel over the practice of the Old Testament law. So as we make our way through to the last chapter of Hebrews, we find the author concluding his thoughts on the sufficiency of Christ. As we approach verses 10 through 16, we see the author laying out the purpose and the function of our praise to God because of the finished work of Christ. Within these verses, the author gives us a profile of pleasing praise that all Christians are to adopt. If you could stand with me one more time, I I know that we've done that a lot today, but we want to respect God's word and we're going to stand. We're going to read Hebrews chapter 13, verses 10 down to verse 16. Here we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. For the body of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Our goal this morning through this study is to see this full profile of the type of praise that pleases God. As we will see this morning, God is not simply satisfied with the praise of our lips. It goes far Deeper than that. The title of the message this morning is The Profile of Pleasing Praise. Thank you. You may be seated. I appreciate you standing for the word of God. The profile of pleasing praise. What does it look like to effectively praise God as Christians? Here's three characteristics that we're going to observe here this morning. First off, pleasing praise is defined by our mission. Pleasing praise is defined by our mission. If you look down at verse 10 through 12, you read it, and your first thought is, what is this talking about? 
the altar, those that are serving the tabernacle, being, cruis- or, you know, being um, sacrificed outside of camp. What is this talking about? In the Old Testament, there were two types of offerings. There was the sweet savor offerings, and there was the sin offerings. Within those two different kinds of offerings, there was a total of five offerings in the Old Testament that were required by God. First off, within the realm of the sweet savor offerings, you had three of them. You had the burnt offering. The burnt offering is really the, the aspect where we have the highest aspect of work, the working of Christ, where he is offering himself entirely to God unto his death, to fulfill the will of God unto his death. This particular offering represents Christ glorifying God. The whole offering, except the skin of the animal, was to be burnt upon the altar, and all went up to God as a sweet savor. What it does is it pictures Christ who gave himself as a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. We see in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, it says, Be therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and have given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Christ is not seen here as bearing our sins, but as accompanying or accomplishing the Father's will, glorifying him and vindicating the holiness and the majesty of his throne. That is the burnt offering. The second offering that you have underneath this category of a sweet-smelling offering is a meal offering. The meal offering represents Christ as being the perfect man, and there was three elements of the meal offering. First off, you have the fine flour. It pictures the sinless humanity with this evenness of moral qualities. There was no leaven because the leaven represented sin. If it had leaven within the flour or within this particular sacrifice, then it would not accurately represent Christ as the sinless sacrifice. The other quality was the oil. The oil of this offering represented the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, which characterized the life of Christ. And then the third element regarding the meal offering was frankincense. It was emblematic of the sweetness and the fragrance of his person and life. And so the first offering is the burnt offering that is Christ glorifying God. The second sweet-smelling savor offering was the meal offering that is representing Christ as the perfect man. And then the third offering underneath this overall category of sweet-smelling offerings was the peace offering. And that represented the communion and the fellowship between man and God. This particular offering was interesting. A male or a female animal, the blood, the fat, and the kidneys was offered up to God, but the breast and the right shoulder was given to man. What this represented was Christ's ability through his death and resurrection to restore the fellowship between man and God. And so you have two parts of the offering. God is is enjoying the, the blood, the fat, and the kidneys on that altar, and then the man is participating in eating the right shoulder, and the breast of that particular animal. Those three consist of the sweet-smelling savor offerings. And then in the other category, the final two, which fall underneath this other category, are the sin offerings. And first off, within that category is you have the actual sin offering. Within the sin offering, the blood and the fat of the animal are burnt on the altar, but the entire animal outside of that is taken outside of the camp, outside of the tabernacle, and it is burnt wholly and completely. This represents sin and how Jesus Christ was a sacrifice 
for our sins. Now, that animal being taken outside of the camp represents sin, not being part of the purity of that tabernacle. And then finally, you have the trespass offering. The blood and the fat of the ram were offered up, and this is representing Christ dying for the trespasses of our sins. And so with all of that in mind, we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. With all of those sacrifices in mind here, we look back at verse 10 in, Rome, in Hebrews chapter 13. The writer is using so much symbolism to contrast the privileges of those Jews who are believers that it helps us understand this message extremely clear, especially within the context of those Jews that are listening to it. The writer, the writer notes in verse 10 that those Jews and us as Gentiles, for that matter, who had become Christians, had access to this special altar. Christ's atoning death. Believers have eternal access to all spiritual blessings only Jesus can provide for us. The unbelieving Jews, as the writer points out, are the ones that still minister in the tabernacle. When we see here in verse 10, it says, which, uh, they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. The reason why this sacrifice or the, the sacrifice of Christ does not work for them is because they have not accepted Christ as the Messiah. They're still operating underneath this Old Testament law, this Old Testament covenant. So with that being said, the writer states that those unbelieving Jews do not have access to the benefits that Christ made available for them. And he continues on in verses 11 and 12. He says, For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. What he's talking about there is this sin offering. If you think about the sacrifice of Christ, when he was, when he was nailed to the cross, he was taken outside the city gate to Golgotha. And he was to the place of the skull, and he was, that's where he hung, and that is where he died for our sins. And so what the author is doing here is he's paralleling the Old Testament sacrifices that those priests still held to, to what Christ had done for us on the cross. And then he continues on in verse 12. He says, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. We see in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 21, And he shall carry forth a bullock without the camp, and burn him as a burn. The first bullock, it is a sin offering for the congregation. What the writer implies in verses 10 through 12 regarding the location and type of Christ is to Christians in verse 13. This is what he's saying after he plays all of that background for us. He says that the benefits that Christ offers is not available to those that still serve in the tabernacle. Just as the sin offering was taken outside of the camp, Christ himself was also taken outside of the city gate and he was sacrificed for our sins. After he paves the way for all of that, this is where he applies it for us in verse 13. He says, Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. The writer figuratively states that believers must join Christ outside the camp of the world no longer being a part of its unholy systems and practices. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, it says, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Verse 13 can also be translated as this. Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the disgrace that he endured. Within this particular context, the Jewish Christians were being ridiculed and persecuted by Jews who did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. 
To further drive home this point, the writer says that it may be necessary to leave the camp and suffer with Christ. To be outside the camp meant to be unclean, but Jesus suffered humiliation and uncleanness outside the Jerusalem gate on their behalf. What the writer says after building upon the supremacy of Christ throughout the entire book, that the time had come to declare their loyalty to Christ above any other loyalty and to choose to follow the Messiah even if that meant suffering. So in essence, what the author is saying is that our very praise to God is defined by our mission. What, our, what is our mission as the followers of Christ? Is to follow him fully and completely no matter the cost. To follow him fully and completely no matter the cost. When we give our life to Christ, we must be willing to lay aside anything that prevents us from conforming to the character of Christ. We cannot allow family, friends, work, or whatever else comes into our life to distract us from the full devotion and the loyalty to Christ. This type of missional living defines the praise that we give to God. If we merely just say words of praise to God without backing that up with a lifestyle of devotion to God, then we are just living a life of just self-praise and not pleasing praise to God. God requires far more than just simple words of thanks. He requires a full devotion to himself. Does that mean perfection? No. But it does mean choosing to separate yourself from the world unto Christ so that you can follow and you can please him. The author gives us this motivation in verse 14. He says, For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. In other words, this is not our home. You guys know the song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, right? This world is not our home. And so we do our best at work, we do our best with our career, we do our best with our family, we do everything we can because that's what we are asked to do as Christians and it's maintaining our testimony. But that should not and it cannot be our life. Our life cannot be consumed by those. Our life is consumed by God and his will. This is just a temporary location for Christians. Pleasing praise must begin with our mission and loyalty to Christ. Number two, the second aspect, pleasing praise is delivered by our mouth. It's delivered by our mouth. Look down at verse 15. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. We understand in Scripture that sacrifice in the Old Testament was a pivotal pivotal. pivotal Man, part of one's relationship with God. It was all a foreshadowing of that final and completely sufficient sacrifice, which is Jesus Christ. But underneath this new covenant or the age of grace, we no longer need to uphold this Old Testament law of sacrifices, which is why we as a church don't sacrifice animals because it's already been taken care of by Jesus Christ's sacrifice. What the writer is saying in verse 15 is that God desires the praise and thanksgiving of his people rather than the offerings of animals or grain. One of the privileges that this New Testament covenant brings is this priestly status of all believers. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, that we are lively stones. We are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. The priest, the Old, the Old Testament concept of a priest is no longer applicable to us. We do not have to go to a priest and confess our sins because they're just, they're just human beings. They're just man. 
But the Bible says that underneath this New Testament, that once we receive Christ, he being the high priest, once we receive Christ as our Savior, we are our own priests. We go directly to him. Does that mean that we gather together as body of believers and worship and grow and pray together? Absolutely. But you don't come to me to confess your sins. Because you have a direct relationship with God because of Jesus Christ. The writer states here that one of the ways that we offer up praise is by the fruit of our lips. The fruit of the lips is our speech of praise. We see an example of this in Hosea chapter 14, verse 2. Hosea chapter 14, verse 2, the prophet Hosea is pleading to the nation of Israel to return to the Lord. In verse 1, we see the invitation for Israel to return to God. Hosea tells them to repent for their sins, ask God to take away their iniquity, and their responses to God for his forgiveness and cleansing is to bring forth sacrifice of praise from their lips. I'll read it for you. Hosea Hosea chapter 14, verses 1 through 2 says this, O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take, you word, take with you words and turn to the Lord, say unto him, take away all iniquity, and to receive us graciously, so will we render the calves of our lips. What the author says in Hebrews, going back to Hebrews, is that all that God wants from us as a response as we continue to live for him, for what he has done for us is to lift up his name in praise. In the Old Testament, the requirement for holiness was a multiple sacrifice. The only type of sacrifice God asks for now underneath this new covenant is the sacrifice of praise. Let's bring it home here for just a moment. Let's say, for example, that God requires something other than praise. In other words, God required to do all these good works. Now, again, it seems to indicate that I'm saying that we have to do good works in order to live a life devoted to him. No, 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 it's not about the good works that we're doing. It's about the relationship that we have with God. And so if we love God, just as we love somebody, we're going to want and desire to do things in order to please them because of our loving relationship that we have with them. But the only thing that God asks us to do is, give, is just lift his name up in praise. Now, if we were to think about the gift of salvation, what is it? It's a gift. Christmas time's coming up here in, in what, a little less than a month. And so I give gifts to people, I give gift to my wife. I give gift to Kaysen and Emerson. What do I expect from them in return? Nothing. I am pleased when they say thank you. And, of course, I expect my kids to say thank you because we're trying to teach them good manners. But I don't expect my wife or my kids to do anything to repay me for that gift that I gave them. So if Jesus Christ or God requires something in return for what Jesus has done for us, other than praise and lifting up his name and glorifying him, then it would no longer be a gift because we're repaying him back the very thing that he freely gave us. And so it goes to this this fruit of praise. But here's the stipulation here. God does not want us to praise him only when the times are good and only when the times make sense. As Christine gave testimony earlier, it was hard for her to praise God even though she obviously was devoted to God, when life did not make sense. John Wesley, great preacher, theologian, he writes in his journal this story. He said, I visited one who was ill in bed, and after, had being, uh, after burying seven of her family in six months, she had just heard that the eighth, her beloved husband, was cast away at sea. I asked, do you not fret at any of those things? She said with a lovely smile upon her pale cheek, oh, no. How can I fret at anything which is the will of God? Let him take all besides he has given me himself. I love, I praise him every moment. 
We don't have the right to choose when to praise God. We are commanded to praise him in every moment, in every circumstance, because ultimately everything that occurs in our life as Christians is ultimately by the grace of God and for our benefit, even though in that particular moment, it does not seem so. You get a phone call from the doctor, and the doctor says, you have cancer. Or you go and, 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 and you receive a report from your work, and they say, listen, we had to make some cutbacks. We're letting you off. You have one more month and then you're out of a job. It is hard to decide in those particular moments like how God could be good. But we don't know, first off, we can't understand the sovereignty of God, but we don't know in that particular moment what the future holds for us. The fact that we may receive the news that we have cancer ultimately could be leading us to a different pathway with God. The fact that we lose our job could be redirecting us into a different area in which we can better serve God, which ultimately leads to our benefit in the long run. We have to think about it this way. If we're sitting in traffic, the only thing that we can see in traffic if we're on Highway 40 on a, on a you know, 8.30 on a Monday morning are the five, six, seven, eight cars in front of us. But we don't see the cause for that traffic unless you pull up your Google Maps and it gives you a guess. But we personally cannot see the cause of that. That's how it is in our life. The particular roadblock that we hit in life, we can only see in that particular moment. But God has the helicopter view. God can see what the future is. And there's nothing that comes into our life without first passing through the sovereign hands of God. So we praise God. We give thanks. John Phillips writes in his commentary on Hebrews some sobering questions regarding our praises to God. He says, how long does it take to perfect praise? to soberly think through the immense realities of the grace and the goodness and the glory and the government of God? Is praise the glib singing of a chorus, or is it hours spent in God's presence with heart uplifted in awe and worship at the wonders of his person and his works? Is praise the thoughtless line or two of a hymn sung with others at a worship service, or is it the voice of testimony raised among people and glory to God at home, at work, and that play. Pleasing praise is defined by our mission. It's delivered by our mouth. And finally, number three, pleasing praise is displayed by our methods. By our methods. Look at verse 16. It says, but to do good and to communicate forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. In verse 16, the writer speaks to a life spent for God's glory. Through this verse... The author states that the sacrifices of praise coming from the lips of God's people only please God when it is accompanied by loving actions. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, it says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Good works and love towards others is not offered to God as a way to gain more of God's favor and love. This would be legalism. Our behavior and our love for others is the response of a truly grateful heart towards God for a sacrificial love for us. Our lifestyle, our behavior, the management of our money and our time is all a reflection of how much we praise and love God for what he has done for us. Let me use the example of my son. Uh, yesterday, um, we were going to go to this uh, Tar Heels game. I had couple of tickets to the to the Mercer football game and so I had talked to my wife and I said hey I, you know I want to shoot casing over there uh, somebody gave me the tickets and so it's free so let's just you know we'll go over there 
well, yesterday the weather did not cooperate, and so I wasn't going to take him out there and, and uh, be a part of that weather, and I quite, quite frankly didn't want to sit through it either. And so we stayed at home, but I wanted to make it up to Kaysen. And so I said, Kaysen, you know, him being three, he's not severely disappointed as long as I bring some candy home. And so I said, Kaysen, uh, I'm going to bring home some, some special stuff. And I asked him, I said, what do you want uh, to eat during the game that would be special? He could have anything in the world. And his choices were popcorn and grapes. <laughs> popcorn and grapes. I said, you don't want like chicken wings or something? No, popcorn and grapes. Okay. So I picked him up some Skittles on my way home from the store, and on top of the, actually, I never gave him popcorn. He kind of forgot about that part. Um, but he did get some grapes in him, so he was all sugared up. And so I brought it home, and I gave it to him, and it was a gift. And I said, Kaysen, here's the Skittles for you. Enjoy them. You don't have to do anything for it. Whenever Kaysen feels loved by his daddy, whenever he genuinely appreciates something that his daddy has done, he always responds with this phrase. Daddy, I love you. Daddy, I love you. And then his behavior after that point is in a way in which he knows would please me. Not because he's trying to gain more of a favor with me. I'm going to love him no matter what he does. I get frustrated at times, yes, but my love for him does not change. So he doesn't behave in a way in order to gain more love from me. He behaves in that way, he responds in that way because of his genuine love and gratefulness for what his daddy has done for him. And so as we conclude this morning, may we ever praise our Lord because of the genuine remembrance for what he has done for us as Christians. He has sacrificed his son. He is, God has sacrificed his son so that we can have a relationship with him restored that's why we give thanks. That's why we give praise continually over and over again. May we never cease to declare the praise 